everyone. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. This is the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. Welcome to the Fueling Creativity and Education podcast. Today we have a special throwback episode for you. Yes, and Cindy and I will be doing a few throwback episodes over the next few weeks as we ready ourselves for season six. Now, this throwback episode takes us to our interview with Brian Alexander, an award-winning internationally known education technologist and futurist. We recorded this interview during the summer of 2021 and selected Brian because we wanted to talk more about machine creativity. And it was also this episode where we first began to talk about the idea of collaborating with machines in the future. Yes. And I remember I began to explore different AI platforms back then after listening to that episode and how much it has inspired me to think about how to bring this into education. So without further ado, we take you to our interview with Brian Alexander. Brian, welcome to the show. It's great to be speaking with you. Matt and Cindy, thank you very much for uh, welcoming me and thanks for hosting me. It's really good to hear from both of you. So to get started, we was wondering if you could tell us what, what does it mean to be a futurist? What, what's the t- what does that work look like? Well, people often assume that being a futurist means giving predictions about the future, and that's often what people seek. But really what we mostly do is we help people think more strategically, more creatively, more effectively about the future. So, Brian, tell us how can we use creativity to anticipate the future? In all kinds of ways. Uh, As consumers of somebody else's creativity, one of the great ways to think about the future is to look at other people's creative visions of the future. Uh, For me, I insist that science fiction is a mandatory literacy for the 21st century. Obviously, some chunk of science fiction does an interesting job of giving us different visions. And those can be in computer games, in print fiction, in television, in film, uh, all kinds of ways. Uh, Another, and that's as a consumer, Uh, But as a producer, I think one of the great things to do is for people to exercise their creativity and try to imagine new futures. And this can occur in a number of different ways. It can be taking a look at present day trends and imagining them future uh, as unfolding in the future. Uh, So it could be, for example, uh, taking a look at podcasts and asking people to imagine, all right, what would happen if the podcast audience doubled in size? Or try to imagine some of the changes that could happen in podcasting from content to format and so on. Uh, It can involve uh, playing games. Uh, my colleague Stuart Candy has a fantastic little game called The Thing from the Future, uh, which helps people creatively determine artifacts that have appeared from the future um, in some really clever ways. Uh, it can be uh, simply trying to create scenarios. Uh, about the future. So if we try to imagine, for example, uh, a future where uh, climate change has hit the world very, very fiercely, uh, that we're you know close to a worst case scenario, then we have to creatively imagine how that changes, obviously, the world about geography and geology and the environment, but also how that changes sociology, how it changes economics, how that changes our minds and, and our culture. Uh, so I, I think thinking about the future is inherently a creative 
act. And that's one of the reasons it's so much fun. And it goes along clearly with one of the skills that E. Paul Torrance brought up, which is getting glimpses of the future and imagining what could exist. So I think exactly what you're talking about has come out in the creativity literature. The trends piece is really interesting. And I wonder from you, in terms of our K through 12 education, I know you spend a lot of time looking at higher education, which I would also like to really touch on later. But could you tell us some give us an example of a trend you see right now in K through 12 education and how we might think about some different scenarios moving forward with that. Oh, sure. Um, We could think, for example, about the uh, major demographic change that uh, the United States, along with just about every single developed nation, uh, has gone through this process of producing fewer and fewer kids. Um, you know, our, our birth rate, um, the number of children uh, per adult woman has dropped way below two. Um, and so one of the things you can see is a, a smaller population in K through 12. So that's a trend that we have to think hard about. Does that mean, for example, that we reduce the number of schools? Uh, we are, we're seeing this in some states, for example, like Vermont, where they have very, very few kids. Or do we keep the same number of schools and teachers intact, but try to enjoy smaller class sizes? Or do we think of new pedagogies? Do we shift, for example, to more online schooling in the K through 12 space? Uh, that's a trend that's really, really baked in, and it's one that's accelerating. Uh, and we see many examples of this from around the world. I mean, so that's one, that's one trend I would point to quickly. So now I'd love to shift into the higher education piece. And I would, you know, you've you've written so much, you have a book on higher education, and I would love to hear one of the trends that you're seeing right now in higher education. I know certainly one of the things that you've written about is the decline in students in higher education and how it's sort of just going downward, especially after, you know, we hit this pandemic. So in what ways will we see changes in higher education based on the current trends? Uh, If we think about enrollment, total enrollment, uh, higher education in the United States, enrollment grew from about 1982 to 2012. It grew enormously. I mean, just a huge historical sweep, driven by the fact that the whole country came to a consensus that we want to have as many people with as much post-secondary experience as possible. And we agreed on that, and we drove students through, and this has been fantastic. And then in 2012, we reached a peak. Total enrollment was about 20 million which is huge. I mean, this is something like 7% of the population, a huge, huge number. And then every year since 2012, every semester, in fact, that number has ticked down. And as you said, quite accurately, over the past year, it really dropped uh, next to the pandemic. I'm saying like three to 5% uh, each semester. So we're down to something like 16 and a half million right now. And this matters because First of all, the overwhelming majority of colleges and universities depend primarily on tuition student fees for revenue. So if that enrollment drops, this is a real problem for their survival. And every college, every university that has talked about merging or closing or closing programs or laying off faculty and staff, every single one of them has cited a decline in enrollment. Uh, and the second thing is it changes as well how we approach uh, the student population. Are we, for example, going to accept this and then make the calculation that we will improve the quality of the experience 
if we have a reduced quantity? Or do we more aggressively market ourselves to populations that a given institution might not have served? So uh, a regional school, say one in Connecticut, um, that has been appealing, say, to the Northeast, may aggressively market itself to the American Midwest or the West, or to go online and try and reach a global audience, or just try to attract as many international students as possible, or if they shift from focusing on traditional age undergraduates, aged 18 to 21, to more adult learners, or to try to address more senior citizens. Uh, that is a number that is increasing uh, rapidly and will continue to increase for a generation. So I mean, those are two huge implications in terms of revenue and strategy. Now, just to finish up on trends, the OECD did uh, a report, I think in 2018, called Future Trends in Education. And just one of the, the trends that I noted was the change around the digital divide. You know, in the early 2000s, it was a conversation about the haves and haves nots. So people who have physical access to a device. But there's this concept of the first, second, and third level digital divide. And when we're talking about the third level digital divide, and I think it's very relevant to creativity, it's, it's who has the skills needed to produce content to facilitate the interactions that are taking place online. And of course, if there's a, a, you know, a small group of people that only have the skills and knowledge to do that, then obviously there's, we're, we're underserving significant parts of our population. And so thinking back to education, it's important that we recognize these trends because it's not just a case of using these technologies just to use them. It's very, very important that we work with young children to say, look, you need to use these devices in order to interact and learn to create and make in 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 the future world so that that's just one trend that i've been following that the changes to the digital divide which have changed drastically over the last 10 to 20 years and of course have been exasperated further with the the global pandemic uh, it's a terrific point and it's one that doesn't get stated often enough um, and this is this is one that occurs around the world uh different contours depending on where you are uh, geography is a very very big contour basically the closer you are to an urban center uh, the more options you have for more broadband the further away uh the worse those options are that's possible that elon Musk Starlink will be a decisive move in this. Um, so far, it's being rolled out. The rollout is a little bit clunky on the Earth side. The space rollout is great, uh, but the uh, but it's possible this will increase access. But I, I have to say, I'm glad you've been following this. Uh, most people didn't either just didn't talk about the digital divide or they just gave up on it uh, until the pandemic. And the pandemic really brought this home when you sent students home and from home, they couldn't get access to broadband or, as you said, to all the different components of that, be it the human support, uh, be it the hardware, be it the networking, be it the software, or similarly be it the literacy of being able to do more with the digital world. And I, I think we have largely failed uh, to address this. And this is something that we're going to continue to struggle with. I want to kind of shift gears a little bit because you're a futurist and, and it's difficult not to have someone like you on the show and, and start talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I wonder if you could kind of provide us with a kind of summary of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and kind of where we're at from a kind of creativity education perspective. Well, really quickly, um, when we're talking about automation here, we're focusing on software. We're not talking about uh, robotics. So I'll just set that aside for now. Um, and in the domain of software, we have a kind of continuum uh, of possibility as well as reality. Uh, on one extreme, we have the vision, um, the holy grail of general intelligence. Uh, that would be a software that would be capable of holding a conversation with you two. 
uh, and that would be able to shift between different domains. You could ask it uh, what the time is. You could ask it to uh, help you uh, pick out clothing. And then you could have a discussion about Tolstoy. Uh, the other extreme of the continuum, you have very narrow purpose uh, AI. And this could simply be really algorithms that are just very sophisticated. So it could be, for example, AIs that help you complete uh, a sentence. Uh, we already have that in Gmail. Uh, in terms of creativity, the usual argument is that computers are very good at processing lots of data, um, but they're not good at creativity. Uh, so they can help you do a keyword search through a novel very nicely or build a concept map, but they can help you write a novel. The fact is, though, that we've been using automation for years to help us with creativity. I mean, you think about, for example, uh, suggested filters uh, for various image programs from Google Photos to um, uh, Snapseed. Uh, you can think as well about programs that have helped people uh, create music. That in fact, generate music straight up. Uh, and some can be hideous, of course, much like human productions. Um, but some also can work together with people. We see visual creativity. Uh, deep, uh, Google's Deep Dream, for example, is one that I returned to time and again, which basically adds a very thick filter uh, to a photo in really interesting, unusual ways. We've seen experiments with uh, text creation. And in fact, on very basic levels, of field, textual domains that are I don't mean this as a criticism. They're not very creative, but tend to be more rote or repetitious, such as sports or finance or weather. These are fields that you don't turn to for fantastic prose, but you mostly turn to for facts, and there's a very limited vocabulary involved. We already have companies that produce uh, software that produces sufficient writing in those. Um, but we also have ways of analyzing writing uh, from mood and tone that automation helps with. And in fact, we have some new software that's actually pretty good at generating uh, serviceable prose. So I, I, I think on the on, we, we now have within creativity two options. We have the cyborg option where AI can help us be creative and help us expand our creative output. And we also have computers that simply are creative and produce creative output. So knowing that you are coming on the show, I've been playing around with some different programs on artificial intelligence. And I actually texted um, Matt yesterday with a mind blown because I just couldn't believe what could be created. So for example, on AI writer, I was able to say, I want to write an article on creativity and playfulness. And within two minutes, it had written an entire article for me, extracted resources and citations, put them in there. And I, I honestly, you know, and I worked in higher education for 20 years, I gasped because all I could think of was, oh my gosh, what does this mean for my students? Or what does this mean for my children who are tweens? You know, will they need to be writing articles in, in 10 years time when something like AI can just do it for you? And then I was looking at another, another program where you actually, Actually, you get to you get to be the quote boss and say, I want you to write this for me, write an introduction on this for me, give me five points on this. And it just keeps generating things for you. And I thought this this is actually creating something better than what I can write with a, a Ph.D. So what do you think this means for our K through 12 students in particular? 
it means a whole range of possibilities right now. So let's just let's just think about this in a few ways. Uh, one is your uh, your mental experience, your emotional reaction to this is one that I think we're all going to be grappling with in different ways. Uh, for example, I, I look at some of the resistance to self-driving cars. I, I don't mean criticisms of the business models or of the hype. Uh, I mean people who just won't drive them. And the fact is, so far, they are safer than human drivers. Um, but this is disconcerting. If, I mean, especially in a culture like America, where we are car crazy, especially uh, folks you know, older than 20. Um, and th there's a sense of diminishment. You know that that we are being outdone by uh, by our devices. Uh, some, I mean, there there are case after case where good AI has been able to beat humans. Uh, Microsoft has a speech transcription uh, project based on AI that beats professional speech transcription, and that's hard. If you've ever had to do that, uh, that's very very challenging work, especially in the medical field. And time and again, we see this. And I, I think academia is going to be in a position to really help humanity deal with this consequence of being of our hard carbon you know, being outdone by their silicon. Um, and that's really, really tricky. Uh, I think a second consequence uh, comes back to the history. Uh, we think about many cases where we've used devices uh, in the classroom that threatens to uh, supplant our teaching. So back in the 1970s, uh, there was a panic about using calculators uh, because, you know, they, what happens if we have calculators all the time? Should we teach basic arithmetic in K through 12? And we've handled that. Uh, we've handled that in some different ways. Um, and right now, there's some interesting arguments about map making and uh, or map literacy and, and wayfinding, where it's very difficult uh, for people who have been relying heavily on Google Maps and Google Earth to if they don't have that to find their way across the city. Um, so there's some interesting questions about that. Um, and there are many, many more examples we can point to. A third issue to think about is, of course, uh, cheating and plagiarism. Um, so if you ask me to write that uh, report and I just have the software do it, well, now are we in a position where we have to police student output for uh, AI-based cheating? Um, that's an interesting problem to think about, and that ties into some of the questions about grading and assessment. Um, and then, then there's the pedagogical practice of, okay, let's just say these <clears throat> these writing tools are good enough to help us. Um, well, how can they, how do I teach that if I'm teaching fourth graders how to write? Um, you know, I have to, I have to reshape my pedagogy a bit. You know, I have to get to know this tool. I have to think about strengths and limitations and I think of lessons and how they change much like teachers had to change their practice when they encountered decent spell checkers, much like a century and a half ago, how K through 12 teachers had to figure out how to compete with this wild print document called Webster's Dictionary of American English, uh, which was actually pretty radical because that competed with teachers' authority in the classroom. Uh, and, but this is all very, very current stuff. I mean, if we extend this further out, you've raised a really good question, uh, which is, you know, do we need to teach this stuff at all? Um, you know, do how does our how does our teaching change? The, the usual argument is, well, we don't have to teach grammar so much. We don't have to teach spelling so much. We can outsource that to the machines. Well, what if we can teach sonnet writing? That's great. What if the machines can teach sonnet writing or the five paragraph essay or expository prose? Then we may have an interesting spot where either the teachers are replaced or the curriculum is replaced, and then we have to think as well to pivot into the broader picture, how does that connect with what we're preparing students for? Uh, so if you assume that K through 12 students are potentially aimed at college, as I mentioned before, that's kind of our default. Um, it does, you know, should students have to learn how to write offline, as it were, without AI assistance in order to be prepared for university life? That's an inter Or if you're preparing them for the workforce, 
um, again, you have to rethink their whole writing idea. Um, and this, this is this is just beginning. I mean, there, there are other implications we have to think about, too, such as are we <clears throat> do we become dependent on a company's offering? You know, IBM has some great projects, for example. Um, do we then have to rely on IBM? And does IBM then end up shaping our writing styles, uh, which is an interesting problem? Uh, does a school become dependent on a corporation? Should we instead think about having uh, our own uh, software that we write ourselves? Should we rely more open source versions of this? Uh, the implications just ramify and continue to extend. If you look at my children, young children, it's possible, listening to the trends that we're talking about, that in their workforce, they're going to be interacting and being asked to solve problems and produce and create things in collaboration with artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, and that's already taking place. So are we now thinking about what the student can do in collaboration with the machine? And that's not too different to us having conversations about let's evaluate what the students can accomplish as a group, as opposed to as an, as an individual, because that's real world application, right? If well, I love your comparison of, uh, of group work and individual work to AI and individual work. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Um, and keep in mind that we can also apply AI to group work uh, and we can apply AI to uh, logistics or teaching. Um, so, you know, we think about uh, how, to, how to organize students into groups how to facilitate them, how to monitor them, all that kind of stuff. AI can help with this. Automation can help with this. But we can even go a little bit further than this, Matt, and, and, and go back to what Cindy was talking about. Cindy mentioned having uh, uh, the software write a memo for work. Right? Well, it's right now we can also have software that handles, handles management decisions uh, that can help with HR, that can help with operations, that can help with strategy. Uh, and again, this is something that's in development. It's not like we have a magic box that can run IBM, um, but we're working on that. We're, we're heading that way in different directions. And of course, that leads to some scary dystopian versions. What happens if Mac gets fired by mistake? Um, what happens if, uh, if, if Cindy loses her healthcare because of a, a coding <clears throat> error? Um, but one of the problems is, and this is, this is a classic thing in American culture, is that whenever we invent the new technology, we immediately romanticize and naturalize previous technologies. Um, so, for example, I mean, with self-driving cars, we suddenly forget just how deadly and destructive human-driven cars are. You know, the fact that we kill something like 20,000 people a year and maim 10 times that many and cost who knows how much in, in financial damage, um, that's okay. You know, the real danger is what happens if someone falls asleep in a Tesla, right? Um, so we, I think we'll do something similar where, oh my God, I could be fired by mistake. Well, that freaking happens all the time by human managers, right? You I mean, what if they make a mistake? Welcome to the world of business and the world of nonprofits and the world of companies. Uh, I'm sorry, the world of government. Um, Brian, we, we always finish the show with, with having our guests offer kind of three tips or takeaway tips for, for educators. And there's something that I'm thinking, as opposed to kind of tips that they might be able to apply today, are there kind of three things that you think they should kind of go and check out, right? Three trends to monitor, three things to think about as they look toward the future. Yeah. Uh, first, I would grab um, a bunch of, just play with some tools that already use AI to teach. Um, so, for example, uh, Duolingo is much in the news because they just launched an IPO. Um, do, if you don't know it, Duolingo is a language teaching app. 
Uh, right now, I'm using it to study Spanish, Chinese, and Klingon. Um, my Spanish is much better than my Klingon, or Kling, Klingit, I should say. Um, and But that's free, and you can just quickly get a, a sense of how that works. Um, and it's strengths and weaknesses. I mean, it's it's not an unqualified success. There are a lot of interesting criticisms of it, but that gives you a sense of it. Uh, Cindy managed to, uh, mentioned a, a few applications to try. Uh, I mentioned a couple others, like Google's Deep Dream, just to quickly get your hands on and play something, just to see how the response works. Uh, second is to look at the overall field, um, both to just try and get familiar with some of the technologies. So look into, for example, uh, what uh, neural networks are, but also to look at some of the criticism. Uh, I mentioned a couple of uh, really great writers like Kathy O'Neill and Ruha Benjamin. Uh, there are a couple of interesting Netflix documentaries, but just to look into that. Um, and then a third, I, I would really be interested to see um, where you also take a look at AI outside of teaching and learning. Um, and, and the reason I mention this is, uh, is, is often we have people in different fields, especially in education, who will say, I do not want to use this in my classroom or I'm afraid of that, but I don't ever use it. So, okay, okay. Well, outside of the classroom, where to use the technology. Oh, all, all kinds of ways. You know, I shop at Amazon, right? I'm on Etsy. So take a look outside of it. Look at AI, for example, in Gmail autocomplete. Uh, look at AI in Netflix as it tries to suggest different movies for you. Um, take a look at uh, automation in computer games, which is really an advanced state. Um, and, you know, or in uh, um, uh, otherwise other places and other suggestions. Um, so those are my three suggestions right now. You know, AI in the world, the field of AI studies, if you will, and then practically using this stuff. Get your hands dirty. So that concludes this throwback episode with Brian Alexander. If you've enjoyed this topic, we encourage you to check out some of the other topics that we explored after this interview with Brian, where we began to dig a little bit more into the concept of cobots and also how artificial intelligence might impact the future of creativity. We've included links to some of these episodes in our show notes. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Werwitz.